welcome to the South Dakota Game Fishing Parks podcast, latest edition, still unnamed, going by South Dakota Game Fishing Parks podcast, but uh, thrilling stuff. But uh, first off, for those of you not in the know, I've got a ton of talent in the room today. Uh, Josh Spies and Adam Oswald are uh, local, regional, worldwide, renowned wildlife artists, both bring a unique eye for scene scenarios. Um, South Dakota anglers, hunters, campers love. Uh, full disclosure, I have works from both of you guys. Uh, I have prints from you, signed. I've got originals. I actually found the beer uh, sketch that you did for me like 15 years ago. I thought it was lost. I found it about a week ago when I was moving some stuff. I got so a that's... deer sketch of yours, too, or painting of yours, too. Huh? Adam. So, uh, full disclosure, but uh, got stuff hanging up in my house from both of you guys. But uh, let's start with Josh, just quick. Uh, give us your background, where you're from, where you live, that kind of stuff. Well, I grew up in Watertown, um, went to high school, and then uh, from there went to South Dakota State University and um, did uh, worked on a fine arts degree there. And, uh, you know, it's only been, I graduated already 1996, so I've been kind of doing this for a while here. But uh, I live in Sioux Falls now yeah. and um, loving it and but I still get back up north as much as I possibly can and do, you know, fishing, hunting, doing stuff outdoors. And But with a 7-11 year old, now I uh, tend to be more baseball games and everything else <laughs> and uh, life stuff. So, right. Yeah. It, it's amazing that you and I can even be friends being I'm assistant kid, Watertown, hated enemy. I went to <laughs> UND and USD, you went to state. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, it crosses boundaries. Adam, same question. Uh, where are you from? Background, that kind of stuff. Uh, I grew up in Flandreau. Um, went to high school there, graduated. Uh, went on to college. I actually lived in Watertown for about a year and a half out of out of college. But I got a degree in graphic design. Um, been kind of all over. Lived in Pier for six or seven years. And now I've been in Harrisburg for uh, about two and a half years. And... Um, yeah, same thing with the kids. So, baseball and two-year-old and a five-year-old. So, <laughs> let's. I'm I'm going off off paper, but talk about that. I mean, it, you would think, oh, you know, you're an artist, you, you get to stay at home, you get to be with the kids. Is it about impossible to get? How much time do you need to carve out? Carve out if you're going to sit down and all right, I need to work on a painting. I mean, you just told me, Josh, that you were up. You know, your schedule is you're up till two. Yeah. It's got to be about impossible. Just to don't sleep. <laughs> so it's, uh, no, I mean, it's important to me that um, I, I, I want to do everything I can with the kids. Um, but I, my schedule is great. Yeah, like you said, I mean, I, you know, oh, great, you know, I'm an artist and you can, you know, you can kind of make your schedule and do whatever you want. But in order to be, I think, successful at it, I mean, you're working crazy hours. Um, I generally do. I work all day as much as I can. Um uh, but also I love working. I really enjoy working at night uh, because the phone doesn't ring, not getting the text messages, not uh, just not being bothered, and I'm able to focus on what I'm doing. But uh, that means a lot of no sleep. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And, Adam, I know you're a night owl, too. <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm similar to Josh, but uh, I don't do this as a full-time career yet. Um, so I got a full-time job during the day, and then uh, – Quite a few years ago when the kids were being born, I decided that when I get home from my full-time job, I'm a parent. Um, so my painting doesn't start till I go to bed. So it's, it's a lot of late nights. Um, the nice thing about it for me is since I, you know, I don't use my art for paying the bills as much, uh, 
so I can I can take a few days off if I need to or a few nights. Uh, but my thing is I paint because it's an addiction. You right. know, if I if I go three or four days without painting, my wife can attest to this. I'm pretty grumpy. Right. Um, so and I. I've actually questioned myself a few times why I do this, and then a week later, I'm like, "Man, I got to get down to the studio and right. just to throw stuff out." Right. I question myself every day. <laughs> yeah. how, how, if you're going to sit down um, and all right, I, I'm, I want to paint or I need to get something done. How how big of a chunk of time? I mean, I'm sure the muse hits you some days, and you look up and it's 20 hours later, 18 hours later. But I mean, okay, I've got two hours. Is it even is it even worth it? Is it you know what I mean? They... I don't. I don't even think about it. I just do it. I. It's just a. It's well, like say addiction or more of a habit. Um, it's just something I enjoy to do. It's like it is. I mean, I love outdoors things, hunting, fishing, being able to do quite a bit of that. Um, but truthfully, it's still my favorite thing to do is what I do. Um, so the time wise and uh, hours, I'm just. It's just something i just pick up and do i can't just sit there and not do anything so even if i'm flying somewhere or going somewhere i'm constantly working on ideas um it's just something that's in my head um and i I, yeah like adam says it's kind of an addiction and well it's also i I can't afford not to i have to (laughs) constantly be creating constantly getting stuff done constantly getting new things done and and i've even been um trying to more the last several years now I was loosening up more I'm not focused on as much of the details or I still focus on the details but trying to you know working on my style a little bit more too um but it's, it's all about what you produce and and getting the time to- the time and hours into doing it right and I, and I think I can add a little bit to that as far as ideas go um I think any creative person has stuff just comes to them um actually when I was in college they taught us to have a notepad next to your bed, next to the shower, in your vehicle. Because when you're doing that stuff, when you're laying in bed trying to fall asleep, ideas pop to your head. Um, I've got so many ideas, I don't think I'll ever paint them. So it's not, it's not an issue for me. Um, as far as time goes for allotting time for painting, it kind of depends on what you're doing. If you're doing a large section of a painting that you really need to paint to be wet, you know, you're painting wet on wet, you're blending, you, you need to have more time. It's hard to sit down for half an hour here and there. Right. By the time you come back, you're... Your paint's dry, and then you got to start all over. Uh, but you also learn tricks. You know, um, for me, um, for the last two years, I've been painting entirely in oils, uh, which stay wet longer, uh, but they will dry overnight if you leave them out. So I have a palette, a, a glass palette. Um, every night when I'm done painting, I put that gra- glass palette in a freezer, and it keeps the paint. And then the next night, I can pull that out and give it 10 minutes. That paint's ready to go again. So. If I'm working on a painting and I mix up a bunch of colors that I want to use in a painting, I can just use them over and over. It's not like I have to remix them every time I sit down. And that helps with time, you know, if you need to sit down. I think about the hardest thing is cleaning up when you're all done. (laughs) Two o'clock in the morning and you're really tired and you want to go to bed, well, it takes you half an hour to clean up all your brushes and your table and everything. Yeah, make the wife happy by, I mean, I I paint with whatever I've got laying around. So I have (laughs) acrylics, so some watercolor, obviously some oils or whatever, but the oils are the funny one because I... We might be working, and then I have a paintbrush fall on me, and I don't know, and I got paint on me, so then I get tired and I go to bed at two. Well, it's oil paint oil kind paint. of spreads around. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah not, not I, I would guess putting a colorful palette full of stuff in your freezer with kids running around too. I mean, you're, I know both of your boys, Adam. They probably eat it. One, the two, the, 
the little girls might want to play in it. So yeah, oil. reaching in for an ice cream sandwich right. and then they pull yeah. out some oils. Yeah, I have a freezer in the basement, and that's all it's for. Right, we don't put any food in there, and it's just for my paints. And I don't know, I've got enough freezers, uh, big freezers out in the garage for meat and stuff like that. But, right. Yeah, so it's been kind of nice. Cool. So, Josh, you're from Watertown. Um, is it in the water? I mean, you got, <laughs> it, you know, it's. Redland and you and and uh, Wilson and and did did those guys kind of drive you or I mean did they inspire you or is it in the water? I mean, Inspiring. Um, it, it, it's a crazy. It's it is it is a crazy thing. But um, growing up in Watertown, yeah, I mean we're just blessed by you know definitely as John Wilson um, when he won he won the federal duck stamp in 1981. And I remember being a really little kid and, and how big of a deal that was, right. you know, and it was like this wow thing. And, and I always loved to do the, the artwork stuff drawn, and um, I guess it was before Fortnite, you know. And right. So, <laughs> so, he, so I actually that was what I did. And, and, um, and he always had an open door at a studio. You go in there. And then uh, another crazy thing is, is that when um, my mom was a kid, Terry Redland's wife, Helene, used to babysit her. So it was like, well, there's a a pretty incredible resource there too, and plus a just a great man, a great family, uh, Redlands, and right. and um, just helping with more of the you know a lot with business things and and whatever, just ideas and how to make it work. And then the third is uh, John Green and Madison. When right. I was 12 years old, um, <clears throat> I, I used to go down and paint with him in a studio, and um, just it's incredible knowledge that uh you know that helped uh, really develop what i'm what i'm doing now and where i'm at and uh yeah i don't i don't know it's it is pretty amazing that uh had that kind of town around you know the watertown area growing sure. up you know and, and i was talking to talking to a couple people about that when i, I was thinking about that question and and uh it, it kind of came up with well why would it be any different than sports you know you've got an armor basketball mm-hmm. dynasty or a Yankton football dynasty, and it's like, well, success starts breeding success, and you get these little kids looking up to the bigger kids, and in your case, you know, you have access to some of these guys, and it's just like, oh, God, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Adam, with you, um, it's a little different. Is it genetics? <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you've got, I, you've got a family member that's a pretty talented dude, and, and you know, in uh, Weezer, and it I don't know. I mean, or is it the same thing? You were exposed to it. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes from um, you, you, Weezer, my uncle, uh, Denny Weezer. Uh, he He's related to me through marriage, so it's not genetics. Right. <laughs> but a lot of that was right. growing growing up. Uh, he took me to art shows. I went and, you know, I'd stay in the hotel. We went to the Watertown Art Show. Mm-hmm. It was one of the biggest drives in my youth. We'd go up there. I'd spend the whole weekend with those guys and sit at his booth and walk around and talk to artists. And they actually had a youth yep. booth for a number of years. I know yeah. Josh always yeah. hung pictures up there. I'd hang up terrible drawings of deer there, and people would come by and buy them for 10 bucks. Yeah. But that was a drive. I'd walk around from artist booth to artist booth, and I'd spend all day just staring at the paintings because um, it, it's always mesmerizing. It's a heck of a show. Yeah. yeah. A lot and, of talent. And I'll say that, you know, I alluded earlier that I, mo- I lived in Watertown for a year and a half. I moved there just so I could. Claim I was a wildlife artist. It's the only reason why I'm up there. <laughs> but uh, John Green was also a big factor. Um, same thing with Josh. I grew up 30 miles from John, so I spent a lot of time over there. Um, and still to this day, I don't get to see him as much as I used to. 
but he helped me a lot. Every time I'd finish a painting, I'd take him over there, and he was a very good constructive criticizer, which, yeah. which helped me a lot. You know, every painting I thought I did the best painting I've ever done, and I'd take it over there, and he, you know, he wouldn't break it down, but he'd say, okay, but you can do this, and it's like, oh, yeah. This you know, will so help. That was probably the most yeah. learning. Even though I went to college for something that's kind of creative, that was probably the biggest pusher for me with wildlife art was having him say, this is great, but you can improve by doing this. Constructive criticism yep. is awesome. Especially from right. somebody that really knows the you know, the, the wildlife art scene and stuff right. like that. So hmm. that's that's you don't see that in every profession. I just keep liking it back to sports. Can you imagine being you having your next door neighbor be Dustin Pedroia and you're <laughs> like, dude, can you come and take a look at my swing today? And nah. He wouldn't happen. talk to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a very interesting field. It's uh you know, like Josh and I are good friends. Obviously, I'm friends yeah. with uh, a lot of artists, and um, you know, it's a competitive field. Um, you got the duck stamp, you know, contest and everything like that. It's competitive, mm-hmm. but you're happy for someone when they win. Um, you love like oh, I, for I, sure. I, if I wasn't a wildlife artist, and if I had the money, my walls would be full of Josh's and Mark Anderson and John Green and John Wilson. You know, right. mm-hmm. I, I'm a wildlife art fanatic first, and then I'm an artist second. But yeah, it's a really interesting field because it's competitive, but at the same time, everybody helps each other for the most part, um, and everybody's happy for each other when they're yeah, successful. More South Dakota dudes to win the federal duck stamp. Yeah, get it out yeah. of Minnesota. We're going to talk, <laughs> talk about that in a little bit. Let's talk about. Um, we talked a little about, bit about background and even a little bit about training, but I kept thinking when I decided I finally roped you guys in and we're going to do this that how important is is it to have that eye or is there even such a thing like josh I'll, I'll give you an example adam and i worked together for five years and we'd go out both have a camera same mm-hmm. camera yeah same lighting essentially same training shooting the same subject and we'd come back and look at photos and i just i'd be livid i'm like dude what that that's not what i saw now yeah. you know and i consider my, i'm fairly creative i don't have an eye for anything but I would just shake my head and I'm finally like, we'd go out and I'm like, I'm going to shoot a GoPro and a video camera. You do whatever you do on the camera because we're not using my pictures anyway. Right. Can you, I know with training you probably can improve it, but are you just born with that innate way to look at things? Boy, um, I don't know about the born with that. I guess maybe it's just a different way of looking at things, um, a different perspective. Um, I also, you know, I do a lot of photography too. Um, it, it's just, yeah, it's just a different way of looking at things. Gesture of an animal, or, or something that it just makes it a little bit more interesting than just uh, just standing there, or the law of thirds, or the golden mean, or all this stuff where you know a certain place in the photo where the animal, where your eye will direct it to that animal, or whatever the subject right. matter is, and um, I think. Uh, that's a big deal but that's also something like you know graphic design which i would add that to a a bunch in college and it's it's just there's there's ways of looking at something that will direct your eye towards that and um i guess with everything i do I, i i i try to do that the best that i can but it is something you can learn too and um you know just a better angle and where to go from there i guess I used to get so mad at him. I just, why, why am I even here? I'll just go home. Uh, Adam, I know you're a big deer hunter. Uh, I know that because I've helped you drag big deer out of nasty places. It's good to have good friends. <laughs> uh, 
archery hunting is that is that your favorite? Yes. Why? It it's and it's less about the killing. It's more about getting out there. Um, I don't consider a hunt successful if I shoot a deer. Um, I pass up 30, 40 bucks a year, and it's not because I'm waiting for Mr. Big. It's just I don't feel like it, you know, and I'm in a tree stand, and I'm already successful. If I got any deer within 20 yards of my tree stand, that's that's success to me. Um, that's what I base my success on. I have just as much fun watching the deer walk away. Matter of fact, last year I used to never carry a camera with me when I went out hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. I used to never carry a camera just because, especially archery hunting, because you got so much gear and you're in a little bitty tree stand or in a little bitty ground blind. Just never room for it. But last year I started carrying it more just because I was having more fun shooting photos of deer and other wildlife. There's all kinds of wildlife you see. That's one of the other reasons why I like archery hunting is you're out there, you're kind of part of nature. Like um, The wildlife doesn't know you're there most of the time, or at least that's the goal. Um, <laughs> so you, you've got squirrels you know, in a tree two feet from you, and they don't realize you're there until they're almost on your shoulder. Well, that's pretty fun, you know. And then they don't shut up. Yeah, and then t- <laughs> until they go to the other tree and sound like a deer all night. But, you know, it's just that's part of the reason why I like archery hunting. You know, I, I grew up, first started rifle hunting, and there's nothing against this type of rifle hunting, but it was always deer drives, and, you know, the deer were running from you. And, and like I said, there's a place for that. Uh, but at some point in my life, nobody in my family archery hunted, but I wanted something more. I wanted to hunt deer and not have them know I'm there. And I wanted to be able to call deer in, and I wanted to be able to see stuff that they're doing when humans aren't around. Right. And that's why I started archery hunting, and that's why I still do it. And so, cool. And now my kids are starting to get into it, which is a whole other level of fun. So. Right. Uh, Josh, kind of the same question for you, but... I know, um, you know, we were just talking before we turned it on, you've got a giant uh, elephant painting, and, and then you said you made a change and it's going to take you two more weeks, which I just, time yeah. frame, but, um, so like that African stuff, is that from you personally going and shooting photos, going safaris, and, and how'd you get into that well, aspect of it? Boy, so it's just going to take a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, well, I've always... I grew up doing the hunting and fishing deal um, as much as humanly possible. Um, And then with doing the artwork and doing shows and meeting people. And then, uh, you know, I I did a a lot of waterfall paintings, a lot of, um, you know, more North American stuff. And then I got involved in more some of the international shows, um, especially like like Safari Club International. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, Going to those and and the clients and people I've done work for, you know, like we need to do African stuff, and and uh, so that turned into a safari. Oh boy, it was about fifteen years ago, and I loved it. But I also felt like I couldn't legitimately paint something from Africa unless I've seen it, um, I in, in its natural surroundings, and doing that. So that's led to. I don't know. I think I've been on nine or ten different safaris now, but then also different places all over the world and that's come through um clients and and people right. i work with i love it and i love traveling and and then also i have to admit the the hunting in different places right. around the world has <laughs> been pretty awesome too um but yeah, I, I tend to do mostly all most of the stuff i do is big game um, and I don't, I don't know necessarily too if it's, it's, if it's the subject matter that interests me. It's more the composition um, and the way I'm seeing. Kind of we're talking about the photography. It, 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 I, it doesn't really matter what it is, but is the lighting 
um, where it's at, how's it laid out, the gesture of the ammo, or whatever it is that seems to intrigue me more. Um, but getting back to the elephant deal, yeah, I mean, a lot of my customers' commission things are big, and they're African or some sure. international thing, too, which it's fun to do all kinds of different things. But with that being said, being from South Dakota, I do get the itch and the urge to be to keep doing things from home, you know, and things that I'm really familiar with, and and um, paying things from our state and where we live. Oh, it's boy, it's all. Right. <laughs> I can keep talking for a long time on this, but that's that's the basics of it. Yeah, I think part of that too, what Josh was saying is, and kind of going back to your question earlier about seeing things differently, is almost any wildlife artist that I've ever talked to paints what they see or no um it's hard you know once in a while you get a commission where somebody hands you a photograph says can you paint this and you can do it but it's not the same whereas even if you're not out photographing just being there like i'm sure josh is the same way as i am when i'm out hunting or i'm just walking around we notice things we notice the way the sun hits grass at a certain time at night uh, how a tree looks you know different types of trees how different types of habitat and it just registers in our brain um and that's why you know josh is saying you know he's been on you know, been over there several times, and he's seen these things firsthand, and that helps us. And his his works, his international works are unreal. Everything's unreal, but wow, it's um, it's also you can tell too, he's been there and right. seen it. The, it's like too, it's like, and, and I believe me, I mean, some a lot of the commission stuff is a lot of fun. It's really great, but truthfully, too, it's like a lot of times when you get certain certain things to do, if it's not something that you thought of, or I thought of, or Adam thought of and it's somebody else's idea, you know, and you try to work it or mold it into something more of my thought process, It it's not as exciting, and it makes it a lot harder to do if you don't have that passion for what you're doing. It's more whatever. So I, that's why I try to put my own direction or thoughts into everything that I do. Because right. you, you actually I think you can see it in the outcome sometimes too, but... Cool. We you talked about um, earlier, Josh. You're talking about uh, style, and and it's probably something you know. It's thrown out pretty generically. Like I could I could say you know you you know I could look at two of your paintings and go okay that's you know there's similar styles, but that's I mean it's probably more even from upbringing influence some of that stuff. But you have your own style. Can you? You said you were working on your style. Can you change your style? It's hard. Uh, you know, I, I growing up, I was really into photorealism, and um, you know, trying to make something, you know, look as much and get the details as close to it as you can. Um, in college, I entered one time a, a, a it was a, I can't remember even what it was because I've been gone, I've been out yeah. here for a long time, you but it was some, it was some art competition deals. Um, I can't remember if it was a USDSSU or draw a pirate or no, and then get that, yeah, that one in the back of the magazine. Yeah, you that might have beat me out on that one. <laughs> draw the pirate. Yes. Um, anyway, sorry. I but no, it, it, I, I did a I did a portrait uh, pencil portrait of an elderly lady. Um, this was a long time ago, and I entered it in the competition. Well, when I got there, I got. I didn't get best to show, but I got first place, and in the you know whatever, and I thought oh, that, that that's pretty cool. And when they announced the award, it, it was uh, 
congratulations, Josh Spice, for a photograph of this elderly woman. Well, and my advisor was there, and I remember he looked at me and he just started kind of laughing and chuckling. So we just left it. I mean, actually, right. when I judged it, the guy thought it was, so I thought, you know, I really accomplished something. But I, and, and I'd done that for years. Um, I think, like with the federal duck stamp deal and those, you have to, it has to be spot on detail wise and getting everything in there just right. And then also my favorite artists when I was younger were, were Carl Brenders, like these guys that were just, they're insane detail on these things. But with that, you find it takes an insane amount of hours to get these things done and doing whatever. And and I think maybe I'm getting a little bit older now here is like some of your artists and, and, and people you look up to, styles just kind of, I don't know, you, 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 things change. And um, I... I have a, a, like Adam was talking about earlier, I, I have hundreds of ideas. I got things I want to do. But the thing is, is, there's no way I'd be able to get them all done. And I'm and I'm, I'm just having fun or sometimes not so much fun because it's difficult to do. It's just opening up a little bit more. And, and uh, I think the term is be a little bit looser but not take away, um, what's the word for it, uh, the quality of the work, you know? Right. So um, I think you're constantly always changing and evolving, um, and what you're doing uh, keeps it fresh and, and, and fun. Um, but I do find when, I, when I'll when i start a big project that, uh, you know, I, I will try to be kind of loose doing whatever, but then no matter what, I always come back to tighten right. in there and, 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 um, and, and do kind of what I, I revert back to what I've always been doing, you know? So... But I think it's always a process. Yeah. yeah, I think for me too. You know, as far as styles go, being a wildlife art fanatic growing up, and you could walk into a room in somebody's house, and from across the room, you could tell who the painting on the wall was. Yeah, you know, I could tell if it was a Terry Renlund. You could tell if it was John Wilson, John Green. I mean, I could just tell, I could tell from a photograph somebody showed me, like, well, that little bitty painting on that back wall is John Green's. I'd know that painting. You know, so I think everybody kind of molds into their own style but it's not a lifetime style you watch a lot of artists and they change even though they might not know it you know terry redland in the 70s and 80s when he was so popular a lot of oranges and browns and you know and toward the later end of his career in life it was a lot more purples and bright saturated colors i don't know if he was doing that on purpose or if it was just part of his painting style it just kind of evolved but for me personally it's the same thing as josh i think we both strive to create real paintings not necessarily photorealistic paintings um the reason why i switched back to oil a little bit here a couple years ago was you know i i want it to look real but when you go to get up to the original painting i want you to see brush strokes and i want you to see the paint itself yeah um that's what i've been kind of doing more of but when you back away from it it looks pretty good um but you know like i don't know it's you hear it a lot when you're doing shows, you know, oh, it looks like a photograph. Yeah, it looks like, that. you know, I think the big one you so, hear a lot of times is like, it looks like I could pull a feather off that pheasant. Right. That's not necessarily the best compliment to us. It's, you know, it's right. it's great, but it's at the same time, that's not our goal. Well took a photo. You know, yeah. right. And that's the difference between art and, and pho- photography is, you know, if I'm that good at photography, I'll just sell my photography prints. But to me, painting, you can do so much more that you don't see in a photograph. Oh. You know, sometimes the shadows get... You know, you, you lose all the details in the shadows. Well, with artwork, you can bring those out. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I, for me personally, I've never just taken a photograph and painted it. You know, everyone asks, well, where's that scene? Well, it's kind of dreamt up, but it, 
there might have been seven, eight, nine photographs that I used to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, different things throughout the painting. Um, but that's one of the nice things about art too is you can do, you can change stuff. You know, there you might take a photograph of a landscape and this tree would look a lot better if it was mm-hmm. twenty feet over here. Well, you can do that when you're painting, right. and that's what we strive to do. So, so that's that's actually a pretty good segue because now I want to talk about the duck stamp competitions and, and oh boy. what you just what you just said, Adam, <laughs> about um, being able to tell who a painting is. I remember one of the yeah. first times, or who who did the painting. One of the first times that we're they had the duck stamp competition online mm-hmm. and Adam's like, yeah, you know, come over and we'll watch it. And I'm like, Oh my God, we're going to watch this online. And you know, there's 60, 60 of them. He's scrolling through them and he's like, I know who that is. I know who that is. No, that's Josh buys. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, there's no, you are so full of crap. And then no. he's like, that's going to win. This one's going to get, these are going to be the top five. And I was like, well, I know that one's Adam's cause I saw it in his house. It just blew me away. I mean, from yeah. that small of a, you know, I mean, even even a duck stamp, the original isn't that big, and it's just like, wow, you've got that style dialed in. Seven by ten inches. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's but no, it's the same. Saying. I agree with that same thing. Is I, I can go on there. I, I know there's probably 20 different artists, and I, I you pick them out right away. Right. It's it's kind of a game for some of us. You know, when they come out with the entries online, you know, like, I love going through them. It's like... I know who that is. I know who that is. I can beat that one. I can yeah. beat that one. Oh, no. There's a good one. I'm yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. What the? And, and the other thing you alluded to as far as. Yeah. Yeah. No Hauptmans this year. Uh, I don't know. The other thing you alluded to was picking the top. You know, as far as that federal goes, you can pick 10, 12 entries that you think, man, those are going to do really well. And maybe eight of them will. But as far as picking the winner, it's, you know, I think last year I picked the. Um, the second place entry, I was like, you know, I, I think I picked that one to win it, but yeah, but you know, it's you can pick them and you can say, you know, artistically, like I think these are the best five. That doesn't mean they're going to be the top five, right? It's just the way that yeah, you got five judges right. that. And uh, for those of you listening, when I did bring up the duck stamp competition, both of them, both of you sat up a little bit more, <laughs> and we both kind of rolled your eyes and gritted your teeth a little bit. But <laughs> talk about talk about that process. Uh, you know, give me the time. Give me the, the not necessarily your process, but give me the timeline. You know, you mentioned it's got to be a seven by ten, but give me the timeline and, and what you have to do to even submit one. And we have to be careful because we both just submitted our entries that right. we do. Yeah, I don't last week. I don't know. And we we can't right. discuss what so we learned. Now I can't. <laughs> yeah. right. I think the deadline was the fifteenth of August, so we both. I'm sure we submitted them almost on the deadline. Right. But, um, you know, as far as the process goes, as far as the competition goes, they they give you it's the same size every year, seven by ten, with a one inch white mat around it, basically. Um, pretty much everyone does it on like an eighth inch masonite board because it's got to be flat. Yep. Um, they give you five species every year that you can pick from and enter. Uh, this year was a special year. Do you remember it, it had to show a hunting scene or something? Yeah, related to they're celebrating hunters, and which is a really yeah. cool deal. So, I, I so think. every entry mm-hmm. this year will have something related to hunting in it, mm-hmm. whether it be. You know, I'm sure there's going to be decoys and hunters right. and everything else. Um, so that was kind of a special. They don't normally do that. I don't know if they've ever really. But, you know, and that's their rules, you know, and then, you you know, obviously a few other rules you have to follow. But um, About nine pages of rules. Yeah. yeah. It's very legal. It's a fact. It's right. a, it, a lawyer wrote them up, I'm right. sure you know. Um, so. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it's, you know, as far as us, we what we do is I think the first thing is, I know I start out with like little thumbnail sketches. I'll pick two or three of the species that either I really like, uh, maybe I have a lot of reference photos of them, 
or maybe I think, well, that one's you know really colorful. It might stand out against these other ones. And then I start out with like thumbnail sketches of different, you know, two or three different species, kind of different, you know, standing, flying, doing right. different stuff. And then I'll refine that into maybe one or two little bit larger, more detailed sketches. And then I just pick one and go with it. And, Can and, you get a spoonbill to win just one time? Mm-hmm. That would be excellent. That's my dad. have been close a few times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what about, so there's, there's the federal and obviously that's a big deal. And, and Josh, you won that one. Had there ever been a decoy in one of those before? I, I've never seen a, the one that you won. You had a decoy. There was a canvas back in the 70s that uh, was just as one single decoy, like three of them flying in the background. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think I think the reason that one, it was just something a little bit different. Right. Um, simple, but really, again, to go back to the detail, you, you pour the crazy thing about the 7 by 10 inch painting. It's probably the one painting all year that I'll spend the most time on. And I work on some giant things. Right. I mean, there's there's paintings that are that I do that are six, seven feet tall by whatever wide. And that goofy little paint I mean, <laughs> you wanna put your best into that thing or, or do whatever, but that it can be so frustrating too because uh, I, I don't know, Adam can attest this too, but when when they sent it in and you know you're you know all right i feel like i did a pretty good job and whatever and you know you, you put your best in there but then they could take a picture of it at the fedex out and then the picture they shows up online it's like oh what the heck is picture that? That? It's like, oh, does it really look like that and then um when you look online like we were talking about earlier you know all the different artists that you can you can tell it did what it's like oh why didn't i think of that you know oh and i just did that but the amount of time you put into it and if you if you don't win it it's like hand grenades and horseshoes it right. doesn't, yeah. doesn't do you any good and then right. what you actually sell that thing for i could spend the other time working on other stuff and better but right. it's the only I, I don't end, end, enter any other stamp, any other contests like that or, or whatever, but that one is just, it's kind of a, I don't know what it is. It's, just, it's, it's a fun competition, and it's from some of the best artists are, across the country. You have to be a U.S. citizen to enter it. And um, just being up into that competition, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. It, right. it's, it's I think it forces one. you to hone your craft a little bit, too, you know. Like Josh says, we work really hard and probably spend way too many hours on our federal duck stamp entries. But you do that because you want it to look good. And you you want, you want to be successful, obviously. But you know, like for someone like me that's entered it fifteen times, maybe more than that now, um, had a couple of years where I've gotten close, but it's done nothing for me. But I've spent a lot of time right. at it. But I can guarantee you, if you look at my first entry and my entry from this year, you can see the progress of how. And I, it just forces you every year. We spend so much time on them because we want them to look good and we want them to do good. But you also, you know, you got the top wildlife artists in the country looking at these. And, um, you know, and I've been to a few of the contests. I know Josh has too. Um, and this kind of goes back to the thing about it's a very competitive field, but people are very friendly and helpful. Yeah. Being able to grab one of the helpmans after the competition and bring them up to your entry and say, what can I do to improve? Right. And, you know, have them tell you, well, it's a beautiful painting. You did that. I would have done this. You know, that kind of stuff is awesome, too. But it just it makes you get better at the painting um, part of it. And, um, you know, years ago when I first started in, it was, uh, South Dakota used to have a duck stamp. And yep. I know Josh has won that, too. Uh, that's one of the things John Green told me. He goes, start entering duck stamp competitions. If for nothing else, it'll help you get better because sure. it's a competition you want to do good. And um, I was... 
kind of get in the top five just about every year when they quit doing it. And Josh was able to win it, I think, once or twice. No, I I started entering it towards the end of the years they had the competition. I think I won, I won it the last year they had it. I think so. Um, so Reigning champion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. But there's 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 rounds, right? And, I mean, I've watched this with you, Adam, and and I think the last time we watched it, we thought you had a really good painting and you didn't get past the first round and you threw your hands up and walked out the door and I was so mad I walked out right behind you. So it, it, Explain that. Is there three judges? So there, five. There's five judges, uh, three rounds. Um, so the first round, they call it the in or out round. Every judge looks at, I don't know, a couple hundred, 300, 400 paintings on a good year. Uh Every judge just says in or out for every painting, and you have to have three ins. Well, you want them to, to all say in. If, you, if they that, all say in, then you get excited. Right. But, <laughs> like last year, I think I watched mine, and I was actually I was delivering a, a commission project to this place down in Texas, and they had this big TV, and we were able to stream it live down there. So I had my client and then buddy of mine, whatever, sitting there watching it. And comes up there, mine, like, five ins, nice. This is going to be good. Right. And the next day, she shows up, it's like... You got a couple, three people that really liked the game because then two of them like, nah, I guess we don't like this one. So they get, they do at best they out of five. I think it's so it's five being the best. Or the, the, the second or round, it's now. one through five for each judge, yeah. and then the third round they just started. I don't know how many years ago. Third round now, I think they can only give a three through five. That's and, the third round, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the third and final round, um, which is usually ten to twenty entries that actually make it to that round. But yeah, yeah so it's. It's really disheartening, you know, like I said, we spent hundreds of hours, and I know, you know, like Adam Grimm and all these other artists, mm-hmm. they spend months and months and months on just this entry, yeah. and literally the first round, your painting shows up on the big board, and three seconds later, you might be done, Right. and yeah. it happens to me more than it doesn't, So, but it can be really disheartening, because you think, man, I've worked on this for a long time, I've got a great entry, I think it looks great, and just like that, well, I'm right. done. I, you know, And then the other thing, too, after the first round is each judge can pull back entries that they think were worthy of making it but didn't and i think yeah. a couple of years there where it was you know oh i'm done you know i didn't make the three ends and then the second next day you wake up and you look and it's like oh my entry's in the second round right. so you know but at that time you're not real hopeful because right. it's like, well, yeah. at least no three of the judges like, really didn't like this yeah so. you're still gonna get lower <laughs> adam grimm did do that one year though where he got called back in and he ended up fourth place so i don't know if there was some huh. conversation that he with uh spoonies actually but it, the other thing is, and, I, and we're not going to beat this into the ground anymore, but uh, it's subjective too, right? I mean, it, it might not meet the style, the eye of the judges, so you're like, what do they know? You know, and, and Adam and well, I could have a that. favor, of her. I mean, but that's the point. You don't know who the judges are going right. to be, um, and that's part of the game. Uh, you just have to. You can't. You can get frustrated, yeah, but you just can't take it too serious. You just got to keep trying to grow. You can't let it like, oh, man, I put all this time in this. I must whatever and get down. It's like, no, use that as a motivation for the next year or on everything you do. You know, you can always strive to be better. Um, I, I guess, I mean, yeah, I can get frustrated by it, but I, I always have, I guess maybe that's why I've been successful with what I'm doing is when somebody always told you, like, you can't do this or whatever, it's always been more of a motivator. It's like, well, what do you mean? Yeah, I can. And um, I, I, I guess that goes with the duck stamp or even everything everything I'm doing. It can be even so subjective as the species. There might be a couple of judges there that I want a canvas back to win this year, and I'm going to vote higher for right. any canvas. So it's, I mean, that's just a lottery. I mean, it's, 
well, there's been a few years where I picked the, the species that won was the same species I entered. I, I considered that a minor victory. For well, like even the year that that I actually did, where it was the only competition that I went to was in um, Minneapolis, and we went in for it. It was really cool to be there when it happened. But after the competition, I, I painted old squat. Well, now it's called long tail. But they, uh, the judge, one of the judges came up to me. He was like, "Where did you find a picture of my decoy?" So the decoy they painted right. background, he thought it was his. Were actually, I hate to say this, but I had an old Mason decoy that didn't have any paint on it, and I did look in magazines and books, and I actually painted it to look like one, and um, sand down, made it look all rough or whatever, and I actually had it water. Took pictures of that, and that's how I added my painting. But the guy swore I, I had I painted his decoy in it. One of the judges. Huh. Wow, just lucky. Right. You know, I mean, how, how do you? Yeah, I don't even know who these people are or whatever right. and um but it just you know it is what it is so i'm not even going to get into the fact that you painted a decoy <laughs> for a painting because that's something my, my, my brain doesn't that is right. yeah i got more weird stuff than i don't you <laughs> can't even get in there yeah what uh what do you do if you mess with painting up you don't have an eraser can you work around it can you Paint over. cover it out yeah right. i mess up every one yeah, there isn't one that's it's every single one it doesn't never goes i bet in my life and doing on doing i probably had half a dozen of them that i've done from start to finish like oh man that worked out great i mean i, mean, I always think in my brain this was yeah so I, I do my homework i i get this all laid out but then i don't care it did there's always something so and it's scary too because even right down to and i know josh and i even talked about this you know putting a layer of varnish on your painting once you're done <laughs> And you're doing, you're brushing on some varnish or spraying on whatever you're doing, and all of a sudden a hair sticks to it, and you're like, no, oh. you, know, like, you know, you're trying to pick it off with tweezers right. before it dries. Um, but you know, that's a scary thing. Even you know, varnish you can remove and fix something up and put it back on, but it's scary because it's like I'm done. Right. You and know, the paint's dry. The total look right. of it, and yeah. you don't know exactly what you're going to get. And uh, I have to admit this: my wife doesn't know this, but I sprayed mine on the back deck of our house and it was raining the other day you can uh, see yeah you can see it on the, it's, it's protected part of the deck yeah right? so i might have to go buy a bunch of uh varnish and spray the whole deck now um but it, it's a clear varnish so you can't tell until it was raining it was like oh oops and i think that's part of one of my last steps on any painting is uh, usually touch-ups and when i mean touch-ups it's you know when I finish the sky, if I do the sky first or however I do it, it's never done until the end. You know, I might go in around the duck or something or the water around the duck and mix the same color that I'd used earlier and just touch up around edges or soften edges, make some edges harder. That's the kind of touch up that we do a lot of times at the end. And they're scary to do because, right. you know, mixing that same color and uh, oil paint's a little bit easier. Acrylic paints, you know, if um, well, I've done a lot, darker. it dries darker. So you actually got to. Well, Put it on. It looks lighter when it's wet, and as soon as it dries, it. So you know, it's it's. We're always yeah, fixing good stuff. At that. I'm I'm pretty good at fixing mistakes now. Yeah. It's taken twenty years, but I happy I'm twenty five. Yeah. Right. Happy yeah, mind blowing. Yeah. So you're so you're telling me as an artist, you don't have a like a Samoyed or a Husky dog running around shedding hair, like a Golden Retriever, Yellow Lab. Yeah. Yeah. I got one that's yeah. a hair bag. She's great, and she likes to be everywhere I'm at. But right. every painting that goes out of the house is or out of the studio has a. 
a little piece of her going right. with it. You just hope it's in a cattail. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what's a funny story about that is John Green years ago um, was telling me a story, and he was doing everything in oils at the time, and he won the South Dakota duck stamp. It was his uh, blueing teal mm-hmm. year, and he was telling me a story. He had this beautiful painting of blueing teal, and I think he did it all in one day, flying blueing teal, oil paint, still wet, took it home to show his wife and kids and set it behind the couch or kind of behind the chair on the wall. Woke up next morning, went out, and there was little kid handprints all over it. And it was almost deadline. So he just went in the next day and just hurried up, you know, got a painting he done. could do that. He and, is, he, and he, he won is, it. Yeah. You know, right. yeah. completely different design, everything. And he won it. So it's just, so, but, you know, same thing with dogs or kids, you know. My, my wet paintings stay up high. <laughs> yeah. Don't touch that, my name is Max and Sam. Don't touch that. You mean this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's almost an invitation. Because right. when I was a kid, I know I do the same thing. Yeah. You can't touch <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. How often do you start something? Uh, maybe it doesn't apply to commissions, but how often do you start a project and you're just looking at it and you're like, you know what? This is the gesture of the critter's wrong. This is I'm not feeling it. Bah. Done. Don't all, all the time Did for you? me. Um, I always work on several paintings at one time. Um, you know, commissions always take a you know a little bit more importance, but because they have deadlines, but. You know, I've got several paintings sitting at home right now that I started two or three years ago. I think every painting gets a frustration point. You get to some point in the painting, it's like something's not working. I don't know yes. what it is. You know, I set the painting up where I can see it. I'm working on another painting. I'll just look over it at once in a while. But I've got several paintings I started two, three, four years ago sitting on my shelf at home that I haven't touched them. I'm hoping someday to get back to them to right. figure out what is not working with that painting. But um, I think every painting gets that. There's a frustration point, and it's a matter of, figuring it out or fixing it and moving on um and like you said commissions you you have to but yeah see, I, I don't have i i have my after my sci show i have it's this year it's in january usually it's right at the beginning of february uh after that show i set up a calendar and i know what i have to have done when and has to go out by this date um and uh so anymore i don't i i pretty i have to keep pretty regimented even though i say that and i can have the greatest schedule set up there but no matter what like just like talking about this elephant painting thing right now i want to produce the best that i can and what i think is the best out there is is, i mean that's what i strive for and so i I had this one this painting and i got it done i thought um a couple months ago i actually sent it off um to um, where the guy wanted to get it uh, scanned or doing whatever, and I got it back and like you know what it's just not done. So then I put the this the cattle grits or whatever mm-hmm. in there. Really like that. And then the sky didn't quite match it, so now that's what I'm working on now. And it's like and this is time I need to be working on another commission for a, for a different person. Right. And then I well that's when I stay up till two in the morning and I keep working on stuff and I'll get there, but I just strap. Because you're only, I think you're only as good as your last painting and what you produce. And and I, I, you can have a lot of good ones in the past, but you have to, with with what I'm doing, I have to keep creating, and I have to have at my show in January, big one, have new things for people to see. Right. And and this is what you're working on. I can't just keep bringing back the same old stuff. Right. And um, so I, I feel I feel under the gun. A whole year away 
from, from my that one show because that's that's where my well, livelihood comes from. Right, a big part of it anyway. I, and I think we could work on paintings forever. I mean, so yeah, we're we're so critical of our own work, but at some point, I mean, you want to produce the best work, but at some point, there's a there's a fine line there where you got to say this is done. Right. Anything I do to it, you know, I think I can do to fix this. It's it's only going to make it worse. It's going to make it look like you're trying too hard. Right. So at some point, every painting we have to pick that point. Like it works, it's done, it's accurate. Cool. All right, I'm going to totally shift shift gears. Shift gears on you guys with an here. F. F. <laughs> with the F. Yes. <laughs> I think I might have to go back and look at that, but I'm pretty sure there was an F in there, even the first one. Um, asking everybody that I have on the show, you know. It, Looking at the numbers, um, hunters are leaving and not coming back. Whether yep. they're getting too old and they're and they're moving up to northern Minnesota like my dad, or whether they're leaving the earth. Um, so recruitment, retention, reactivation, kind of a big deal. Um, maybe not so much in South Dakota, but I can tell you, working for the department, that it's something we're thinking about every day. Yep. Got any ideas? I don't think it's it's it's. Well, I mean, we got a, a lot of really nice public ground doing different things, but it, it's it's different from when I w- was a kid. And it, I, growing up around Watertown, I mean, I, I was literally, I could ask about any farmer, ask any landowner, ask any whatever, if I can go hunting or doing whatever, and almost always would say, yeah, sure, fine, you know, whatever, just go do it. I think it, it's harder and harder to find find uh, to find those places um i also think too now with all the social media all all the stuff going on i'm not talking about anti-hunter stuff because there's a lot of that going on too but but kid i think kids are more into the the games and things like that where they're not they're not getting out and doing as much and i'm trying to with my two boys you know getting them out there and enjoying and doing different things but you know their friends, and they're all, they're they're just so stuck on on game. It's just it's just it's crazy that we're they're just their interest isn't it? it has to be more right now with uh, things. So like fishing and you know sitting in a boat. If you're not you know catching things right away, it's just like uh, you know whatever. Well, maybe that'll change as they get older. But but hunting wise, um, I think I mean my boys enjoy that. Um, but I think it, it's just. I don't know the right answer to it. I, I think it, it, it's harder for people to find certain areas. And a lot of things you know, cost money to go places, which makes sense. You know, I mean, you're, people are making you know, livelihoods and doing different things on it. But for a younger person to be able to, you know, pay to go do something, you know, it's just it's harder to do. Um, but there's a lot of things, too. I, I, I think there's a, a, that anti-stuff going on. Um, uh, I times have changed and 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 it's hard and uh to see and and um, i wish it wasn't the case but i i don't know what the answers are for that and i i just wish it could get changed somehow or fixed i think uh a lot of it comes down to adults even like our age adults we're all Mm -hmm. pretty close same age um a lot of adults are hunting less and the problem with that that's that's a multiplier because then their kids are hunting even less because most adults aren't going to take their kids every time with mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, when we were growing up, it was just common for everybody. You know, deer season, there was everybody was hunting, and 
whether you were five years old or fifteen years old, you're with them. It, you know, right? Yeah. And, um, and I and I think it's just uh, I think part of that is the culture that's become hunting. Um, everybody's worried about killing the big bucks, and everybody's worrying about you know it's not successful unless we unless my son or daughter shoots a deer. And I think we need to be less. It's more about getting outdoors, teach them things. You know, sitting in a blind with them. Don't make them be quiet for five hours till a deer comes out. You know, talk to them a little bit. You know, you know what's going on out there and different stuff. Um, and then the other part of it too is you know the money, uh, hunting. And <laughs> I'm a big bow hunter, so bow hunting can be very expensive. It doesn't have to be though. You know, I I don't have the best. You know, I don't have scent-free clothing. I don't. Um, my kids don't have scent-free clothing. I don't go out and buy my kids two hundred dollar boots because. Their toes are warm. I buy them $20 boots at Walmart, and I throw a hand warmer on the top of their toes. Mm-hmm. Just a little stuff like that. It can be expensive. It doesn't have to be. Right. You don't have to have the best, you know, it just, you don't have to spend a ton of money to get into it um, or get your kids into it. There's secondhand stores that sell military surplus camouflage. One of my best camouflage shirts, especially when I archery hunt out west, is a tan button-up long-sleeve shirt. Yeah. I, I crumple that thing up and throw it in the bottom of my pack, and when I pull it out, it's the wrinkliest thing you've ever seen. Well, that breaks up your outline. That's, you know, it blends in pretty good out there in the grass. That was a $10 shirt I bought at some offhand store, you know. It's just, I think we get so tied up in all the gadgets and stuff that um, I need to have a cough silencer if I'm going to bow hunt. <laughs> well, I'm sure they sell a lot. That's great. It's great for the industry, but... You don't have to have all that stuff. You don't have to have a backpack full of $20 gadgets. Um, I don't hunt with a, I don't even know what they're called, the scent things you hang in the tree. Oh, yeah. Ozone or well, yeah, I don't hunt with that kind of stuff. And they're expensive. I just, I watch my, I, I do it the old-fashioned way. I watch the way I hunt. If my scent's blowing the way I think the deer are coming from, I get out of there. Yeah. You know, And it's just, I, I think we are so focused on having to have the best of everything. Um a 12-year-old or 14-year-old kid doesn't need to have a semi-automatic Benelli to go pheasant hunting. No. You know, right. you know, my kids, we 280 bucks for a Winchester pump shotgun, right. and it works just fine. You know, now if they're getting into it more, um, they can save up some money and get something nice with that. <laughs> but, but I mean, that's, and that depends on how much time you spend. If you spend more time out there, you know, you're going to spend a little bit more money, like, it's one of the things I like to do, so I spend more money, but you don't have to. You can get into it for, you know, a deer license is 40, 45 bucks. Yeah. I mean, that's really cheap. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can buy, if you want to get into bow hunting, you can buy a used bow, which is just fine to start with, a couple hundred bucks. Even cheaper if you, as right. long as it fits you. Right. Well, I, I, I just getting back to a little bit on, on like some of the big game things, though, and, and, uh, and I agree 100% with what I'm saying. But a lot of that social media stuff and the anti thing, I mean, I just had a friend, um, a really good friend, that uh, had an African safari, and it came to, um, you know, the, the CITES permits and all this stuff. So this is, this is not, you know, trying to do them all over. But I'm just talking about the national view on different things and with hunting and and truthfully hunters are the only reason a lot of the animals are in africa i mean that's a fact mm-hmm. and they, they can't they, they can argue it all they want they can say what they want but the hunters dollars and it's million i think south africa last year had over what was it a hundred something million dollars went into in all these countries which they don't have that income or those those grounds that we turned into cattle farms that it's a fact and, and and all over the place and i've been able to see a lot of this stuff but 
But you know, a good friend just had a whole thing was written up in the uh, Minneapolis Tribune about his hunt, um, and then I think something was in the Argus Leader about it. About you know, he hunted. I'm not even going to say what it was. I'm not going to say right. who who my friend is, but just it's just his name's out there. He did this, even though he did everything right. Got a CITES permit. Did um, hunted in the right area. Did it right. Did whatever. But just blasting their name out there, and then you know, then it gives the gossip, people talking, and it spreads out through your the Facebook thing and all this crap. And um, people don't realize those anti people are actually killing more animals than they're putting on there. And I, I say that wholeheartedly, and it and it's sad. It's really sad. And they can feel bad about one animal or one rhino or whatever getting shot, even though that would help produce a hundred more in that area or be able to buy more ground for more of them to be able to to live and grow and, and, and just amazing things but they're gonna blow it and it, and it's 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 a fact and, it, and it's sad and it's it's the sad and back in the old days where john wayne and um clark gable and all these guys they were you know heroes as being hunters it was a big deal i mean clark gable used to stay in watertown and a little house and hunt pheasants around there every fall you know and all these things they're looked up to a big deal now anymore it's like oh you know i really and I just think it's sad because I don't. I think education is really important on this stuff, and the people to see that what hunters do and what the dollars, what the dollars go towards, do. plus the food and the meat. I mean, I have never seen people like international thing. There isn't an ounce wasted, including bones, including the inside, including the hide, including every single part of that thing is used in the communities and doing different things, and it's a huge thing. And they praise you coming in there. Gets rid of poaching. Gets rid of all this stuff. I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm a real advocate for that stuff, right. and, and I'm pretty passionate about it. But um, and I, and I, I have gotten into nice arguments with different people about it, where a lot of it has to deal with emotion and not. I hate to use the word, but not a lot of common sense. I'm probably getting killed for saying that, but I just uh, those are my hardened thoughts. Right. And 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 to expand on that, like you know, I everything he's saying is right, and I think. We as a hunting community as a whole need to stick together. You know, you see a lot of the social media is we all got social media accounts. You almost have to. But you'll see somebody shoot a species that maybe I'm not into and, and they'll bash them. It's like, it don't matter. You're, you're hunting. You're all doing the same thing. You're a conservationist. You're hunting just because they hunt something that you don't like. Don't bash them. It's the same thing with deer. You know, every or deer they season, spend some, something to right. go after to do something. Right. Even though all that money goes back right. into whatever. Yeah. And, and you see it during deer hunting season. Somebody will shoot a giant oh, deer yeah. somewhere, and eighty percent of the posts underneath that are going to be, "Well, he poached it. He did this illegal." You know, we're all hunting. No, nobody's happy for anybody that shoots a big deer. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just and, and you know, yeah, there are people out there that are hunting wrong or doing stuff wrong, and I don't consider them part of my hunting um, brotherhood. Uh, but as far as if you're a if you're a pheasant hunter or a waterfowl hunter, and I'm a more of a deer hunter, it, we're still hunters. Right. And you know it's it's up to us to pass that on to future generations and show them the importance of conservation and why we do the different types of hunting, whether it's exactly. whether it's well, international or whether it's here. Federal duck stamps a great example of that. Was like almost six million acres to date has been saved. Over a billion dollars has gone out now from that. Ninety-eight yeah. percent of every federal uh, federal duck stamp sale goes mm-hmm. right back to conservation. Right. And, and recent years, they've made a big push for non-hunters too. You know, bird watchers, anybody that goes to a refuge has to have one. Great, you know. Um, 
but it, you know as far as hunting goes you know we as a hunting community no matter what you hunt no matter what style you hunt we ha- we have to stick together and we can't blame people for certain things you know and like i said poachers you know i'm big into tips um i don't consider them hunters you know it's um everybody makes mistakes once in a while but you know if you're doing it habitually that's hurting our our industry our well, the name. recreation too yeah, yep. that makes us yep yeah and that's it's right. you know people bash people because they have a picture of a deer and the guy isn't smiling who cares maybe that's just his personality or her personality right. you know you know, geez, if I shot something like that, I sure would have a bigger smile. You know, it's like, you know. Maybe add a hemorrhoid. And, and, and my thing, too, is. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> At our yeah. age. Ow. At our age. And we just got edited. <laughs> no, no, we didn't. My, my, that, my so, biggest yeah. thing with that stuff, you know, I love great, you know, trophy photos, whatever you want to call them. You know, I try to make, take nice photos. I try to make them look, you know, you know as nice as possible. The, if somebody wants to take a picture of a deer in a back truck, I mean, it doesn't mean, doesn't mean not that big a deal to them. Who cares? You know, like right. I don't bash them for that. Um, they're they're hunting, and the photograph doesn't mean as much to them as the memory does, right. and that's fine with me. So, I just you know, me personally, I like to clean up the animal yeah. and do stuff, you know. But it's um, uh, the memories are why I do it. So, right. but you know, on the flip side of that, it, it's I, I always like to see you know, a guy post a picture or or a gal post a picture, and it's like, geez, why'd you shoot that deer? Yeah. Well, what do you care? You know, I it's a trophy. You pulled the trigger, you shot it, you filled your tag, you did it what you want. I hope I hope it was awesome. I hope the meat's yep. great. I hope you know, so that's the tough part. I think we we pit ourselves against each other on a lot of this stuff and whether it's just a flippant comment or you know, even in the deeper, darker stuff that you were talking about, Josh, it's it's yeah, I, I see um Powderhook is a company, um kid is from South Dakota originally and he just came out with some stuff, some software to help mentor and, and run some stuff, but he's got some videos out, and the hashtag is Hunter's Will. And he's talking about who's going to save the, you know, mm-hmm. who's going to save the hunting heritage, who's going to keep conservation going, who's going to recruit the next generation of hunters. Because honestly, this problem is fixed if all of us as as hunters take one person and mentor them. Yeah. Like for a true mentorship, like four years, you know, start to finish and get them to the point where they can go out on their own. The problem is solved if we all did it. Now, that's not going to happen. We know that. But it's kind of an interesting take on it that, you know, hunters will. And and, and that's our hope. And th- this is a tough question. That Every time I've asked this question, even I asked it to Cooper, John Cooper, <laughs> and he, he just kind of took a big deep breath and turned the microphone off and was just like, really? We're going to i got to put some thoughts together in my head. And I was like, 20 years later, I finally stump you. So it's it's not an easy question. There's no easy answers. And it's a, and it's a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of work. You know, you talk about mentoring somebody, even your own kid. You know, I, I'm i kind of entering that phase of my life where my kids are hunting, and that's what my goal is, to spend more time with them outdoors and to get them hunting. It's work, especially archery hunting last year. You know, my, my uh, 14-year-old son last year was his first year archery hunting. It's a ton of work. And you almost have to give up a lot of your hunting time just to kind of show them, you know, and last year was more about me helping him um, and setting things up for him and getting him shooting his bow correctly. Now this year it's more like, okay, we went out a couple weeks ago and kind of found a spot where he wanted to put up a new tree stand, but I let him pick out the tree, kind of made him do all the work, showed him how to do it safely. Um, but it's more about now about that next phase of trying to teach him how to do it on his own. Right. Um, but it's it's a ton of work. It is, even if it's your own kid. Right. Um, but it's fun if you if you have that mentality. It's fun, right? 
Well, boys, that's about all I got for you. Normally, we're supposed to go a half hour on this. We're in hour two now, or you nice. know, past hour one. So uh, <laughs> a lot of good content. Uh, before I leave you, before I let you go, when is the duck stamp competition? Do you know? September 14th and 15th, I believe. And you can watch it on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife site? Yeah, you can stream it through stream there. It there. I, yeah, you just have to Google it. And, right. And then, it there. Yeah, they'll have links. Um, yeah, September 14th will be the first round. It's a Friday. And then the second and third round will be the 15th. Cool. Less it's, than a month. And it's in <laughs> Vegas this year, I believe. Yeah. So. Yikes. Yeah. They need to get it back to the Midwest. I think the only time it's really been here is Minneapolis. Minneapolis. I'd like yeah. to see it come back up here sometime. but Right. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for your time. I do appreciate it. And I'll let you boys get back to creating instead of <laughs> bloviating. <so>. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate the time, and uh, coming up next, the M. Miller Ryan from the Outdoor Campus. I've been time flying just past by without seeing how to me. I've been time flying just past by without seeing by to me. This is Thea Miller-Ryan at the Outdoor Campus. I'm here in Sioux Falls, and this time of year we're working on one of my favorite projects, the monarch butterfly and their migration. I have with me today Sandy Richter. She is our community program naturalist, so she puts together all the great programs we do here at the Outdoor Campus for you, for the public. And Sandy, I think, feels the same way I do about the monarch butterfly. Sandy, um, you know, what, what first drew you to loving monarchs? Where did you first start hearing about them? Um, well, I guess when I was growing up, I always kind of knew about monarchs, but never really knew the intensity of it until I started working at the outdoor campus about 12 years ago. So what um, kind of things did we do that you first uh, got got interested in them? Well, I think the most amazing thing was that I found out that the monarchs are not like any other butterfly that we have in South Dakota. These guys actually migrate, and we can become scientists um, by helping with research, and that's always been one of my passions. It is amazing that just regular people like us, I mean, we just work at this little place for game fishing parks in South Dakota, and the stuff that we can do here counts for real science, real scientific research, citizen science. And have you found that a lot of people have an interest in citizen science once they hear what we're doing? Once they figure out what it is, I think everybody wants to be a scientist. And so, yeah, there is there is a little bit of nostalgia with, with helping with that research and being a part of um, something so much bigger than ourselves. That is a great way to put it. It is so much bigger than ourselves. Um, we hear about the monarch colonies being discovered by, well, the people of Mexico knew about them all their lives, but, um, you know, we scientists here in North America, uh, they were basically quote unquote discovered in the seventies and, uh, it's led to just tons of research ever since then. And at the outdoor campus, we participate in research through the university of Kansas through a program called Monarch Watch. Um, what can people find at the Monarch Watch website? Anything and everything you ever wanted to know about the monarch butterfly, I think. Um, it talks about the monarch life cycle. It talks about um, different plants that you can grow, host plants for the caterpillars, nectaring plants for the butterflies. 
um, how you can help with the citizen science projects, with research. It just has a ton of information, and it's updated um, throughout the year. The thing that I find the neatest about all that research is tagging. And, you know, in my career, I've helped tag some brown bear, and I've helped tag turkeys. I've helped... um, Oh, I haven't helped, gotten to help with the deer study that we did here, but uh, quite a few of our staff has. But when people say, we're going to tag a butterfly, what, what do you usually hear from people? <laughs> They're like, where and how would you even do that, <laughs> is what they say. Um, and it's it's not going to be like if you are, are putting a radio collar on a deer or a mountain lion. This is a little bit, um, a lot of bit smaller than that. This is just a little sticker, but that sticker has a ton of information that can help out those scientists. So how do you put the stickers on the butterflies? Oh, carefully. <laughs> um, the first thing is is to, to catch the butterfly um, safely so that you don't injure it. And we have found the best way to do that is by using like an actual uh, butterfly catching net or an insect catching net. Um, a friend of mine asked me this morning if they could use their fishing net, and hmm. the answer is no. Um, <laughs> the holes in the fishing net um, are just a little too big that if the the monarch would get their wings caught in there, that could cause some, some major damage, and that's not going to help them on their flight down to Mexico. So it needs to be a, a soft um, net uh, that you can use to catch them. Um, when we hold the butterflies, we hold them with their wings closed so as to not to damage the scales on the inside of their wings, um, which could affect their flight. Um, yeah, I've always heard you can rub the scales off a butterfly, and it's true to a point, right? You can. That's right. And um, if you are flying all the way to Mexico, you want to try to keep as many of your scales as possible. That's a good good <laughs> advice for the butterflies. <laughs> Don't lose your scales. <laughs> uh, so then uh, we're holding that butterfly correctly or safely, we're going to take that little bitty sticker um, that's made by 3M right here in South Dakota. And uh, we're going to put that little sticker on the the bottom wing, um, on this little cell of the wing called the the discal disco. cell. Yeah. Um, it kind of looks like a, a little mitten. I always want to say the disco cell. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but there's no dancing. <laughs> um, and so we, uh, we stick that on there, and then we carefully uh, hold on to the butterfly's legs, and that l- allows them to open up their wings, and that uh, helps us tell if they are male or female. Um, and that's important. No, wait a minute. They open up their legs to tell if they're male or female, or no, what do you mean? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. We hold onto their legs <laughs> so that it. they don't fly away. Okay. Which helps them relax and think that they can open up their wings. Wings. Got it. <laughs> with us looking at special markings on their wings allows us to tell if they are male or female. Okay. Sorry. Just had to clarify that because people ask My me that all the time, too. goodness. <laughs> So we write down the information if they are male or female, the date that we tag them, uh, the tag number. There's a little uh, six-digit ID number on that tag. Um, And then we write down if we raised that monarch or if we caught it in the wild 
um, and then the zip code. And so that's important information that kind of helps um, those scientists out down at the University of Kansas. Um, once we put that sticker on, it's going to stay put, and we gently release the butterfly, letting go of the legs <laughs> and holding it up, and the butterfly takes off. And so they have found that putting the sticker on that part of the wing is the safest way for the butterfly um, to not get injured or um, damage its flight. That is so amazing. And then they just start flying, and they fly how far? Well, it's all the way down to Mexico. So is that it's like over two thousand miles? Over two thousand miles, yeah. um, and they have to deal with the weather and cars. Um, I just broke my heart yesterday. I was driving on the interstate, and <laughs> here comes a butterfly, and he just flies right in front of my car. Oh, it no. just breaks my heart because I was just thinking, <laughs> oh, I could have just tagged that one. Um, Shoot. But those butterflies, they are, they've got to make it all the way down to Mexico. They don't have a map. They can't use GPS. Um, they can't even ask their mom and dad for help. So, <laughs> But they know how to get down there, and they fight the wind and the rain and, and all the storms. And they make predators it. too, I bet, and a few predators along the way too. Yeah, there not a lot of birds will eat the monarch butterfly because they've learned that orange butterflies are bad for them; mm-hmm. they don't taste good. And that's because the monarch during its lifetime ate um, milkweed, which has toxins in it. Right? That is correct. And those toxins just don't taste very good. And birds can be pretty smart once they taste one orange butterfly; they know not to go back to it. So those other orange butterflies that aren't monarchs, they're just getting off easy, right? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when do we hear about the the monarch monarchs if they make it down to Mexico? When do we start getting that information? So uh, they get down to Mexico usually around December. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on, you know, exactly where they're coming from. I mean, we're pretty far north here in South Dakota, but we do have monarchs that come all the way from Canada and make their way down to Mexico. Um, so throughout the winter, um, those butterflies will, will be down there, and they have people that will collect the butterflies um, uh, that have the tags on them, and then that information gets sent back to Monarch Watch. So we've been doing this since 1997 here at the outdoor campus. So 21 years. Actually, this is our 22nd year of tagging. That is amazing to think about. And in those 22 years, we've probably had, I need to go back and count it to be sure, but I'm guessing around 25 or 26 butterflies recovered. That was going to be my guess. Yeah. Um, it is amazing when you find out that that little butterfly that you tagged here in South Dakota in the fall made it all the way down to Mexico and uh, probably overwintered and maybe laid an egg as it moved north on the milkweed into Texas. And the next generations and the next generations and the next generations will finally make it back here. It's pretty cool to be part of that process. It is absolutely fascinating. It is so much fun. If you want more information about the monarch butterfly and the migration, we definitely suggest you go to monarchwatch.org. It is the University of Kansas's website, and uh, you can always find out information here, too. Sandy puts up a lot of classes in the fall about monarch butterflies. You can come and learn about them, and you can always go with us tagging butterflies, too. Um, you can do it yourself, or you can come with us. Sandy, thanks for talking to us today today and uh, enjoy tagging this fall. 
Thank you to the lovely Sioux Falls Queen, Outdoor Campus Princess, Thea Miller-Ryan, for being part of today's podcast, Episode 3. Hope you liked it. Um, Once again, you know, it's September. We're all getting ready to hit the outdoor activities full-fledged. I know I'm excited, especially excited for duck season. Growing up in Northeast South Dakota, that was was probably even for my family, just as big, if not bigger than pheasant season. But uh, just a couple reminders, quick reminders for duck hunters, you know, with uh, aquatic invasive species issues and laws and stuff that we got going on. um, Just remember, got to pull your plugs when you're coming out, if you're using boats. That's something we seem to forget. I I think a couple years ago, I even did that. We were coming off the water and just about forget to pull the plug on our little duck boat. So if your little boat, kayak, canoe, whatever you're using doesn't have a plug, just make sure to tip it over, make sure it's nice and dry. The other thing that we forget, especially with uh, floating decoys, is when you pull them out, make sure there's those weeds and stuff that uh, are coming along with them. Make sure they're not hitchhiking along uh, so we're not spreading any weeds or invasive species to other bodies of water. Short, quick one for this, episode three. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'm Chris Hull. If you got any ideas, shoot me a line and uh, we'll talk. Maybe get you on or get you uh, get your idea on and hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>